listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. And honestly, I couldn't think of a better Sunday to talk about this because what we're talking about in the book of Titus lends to every single thing that we're talking about uh, this morning. We'll get there in a second, but I want to talk about something that happened many years ago. Many years ago, there was a country that almost collapsed. Uh, It was after a war. They were in a really bad spot. Uh, They had really kind of lost their identity as a country. They didn't really know who they are. And and really what they needed is they needed a leader that would help grow and rebuild their country. And so this leader came in and he started to inspire the people that were there when they were in a very down spot. They weren't in a good place as far as morale. He saw fractures that were in the country. And what he did is he, he healed those fractures and he brought those fractures back together and he really unified the nation in a way that hadn't been unified in so long. Where there was once massive unemployment rates, we saw that this individual started to create jobs and abilities for money to be made and the the, uh, unemployment rate was an all-time low. They had never been that low in the country. He started to develop uh, an infrastructure of that country, um, making new roads and transportation. He actually had affordable vehicles that you could get so all the people could actually be able to move around that country and, and have the economy start to thrive and to really do well. He was, uh, he, he had goals. He knew what he wanted to do and he was fantastic at communicating that with the steps that it would take to accomplish the goals that were set before that country. And he would push his people at times to come up with solutions to things that previously were thought to be impossible, that there's no way that this could be solved, but he would push individuals to do that. And by the world standard, he has been considered a, a very good leader, and, and he led these people well, and, he ra- and the people rallied behind him. There's just only one major problem with this. His name is Hitler. This evil, horrible monster of a person had a problem. You know what the problem wasn't? It wasn't his communication. It wasn't his ability It wasn't his structure. The problem was his character. And at the end of the day, he had put his truth in a different truth. And he had put his needs above others' needs. And what we see is that because of his character, he would cause one of the most horrific events in the entire world that we are still reeling from today and the evilness that came from that. When we start to put our lives and an outside truth, we start to have these problems. This is what Paul is going to be writing to Titus today. And we're gonna see how Paul is actually less concerned about how to run a church service and the philosophy of what happens and when to take communion and when not. But we find what he's most concerned about as he is talking to Titus about these churches is the character of the people that are leading the church. Are they rooted in God's word, God's truth, or are they rooted in something else? 
Because ultimately, if we are to bring God glory, we have to be rooted in his truth. And if we're not rooted in his truth, we are not bringing him glory, and we are actually in rebellion to who he is and what he has called us to. If you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open up to chapter one of Titus. We're gonna be in verses five through 16. If you don't have a Bible and you're new, we have Bibles in the seats, like right right in front of you underneath. There's Bibles there. Those are ESV um, Bibles. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that as a gift. Please take that. We want everyone to have the word of God because we find it so valuable because God has said it is so valuable to our lives. So I'm going to read Titus 1, 5 through 16, and then we're just going to pray and talk about what God would have for us. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful game what ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let me pray, and we will jump into the message this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you for, A, your word, that we can know you and what you have called us to, how we can know where salvation truly does come from. Lord, as we talk about the idea of elders and what their role and responsibility is, Lord, I ask, first I want to thank you for the elders you've given us here at this church, godly men who hold fast to your word, who want to submit to your word and worship you fully. Lord, I ask that we would be able to highlight the importance of that and what happens when those things are not put in place. And when we don't hold the line of truth, what ultimately will happen to your church. We love you. We pray these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Uh, I love the book of Genesis. <clears throat> You've probably heard me go there multiple times. I always go to the beginning of the book of Genesis. The reason why I do that is because it shows what God's purpose and design was before sin entered the world. So if you want to know what it was supposed to look like, how we were supposed to function, the book of Genesis is really good at showing us what it looks like to live in that relationship with God as our Father and as us as His children. Well, What's happening here is as we go past Genesis, we see the fall, right? We see all the problems that occur when you don't do that. Well, that's exactly what Paul is really doing here. He's saying, I want to show you what it looks like when my design for the church and its leadership are established the appropriate way and what that looks like when that's played out. And I want to show you afterwards what it looks like when those things aren't in place and where the church can go if left to its own devices without the plumb line of God's truth. And so that's really what he's talking about in here. Verse 5 is really clear. It says, this is why I wrote you this letter. This is the purpose and the meaning behind everything that we're doing right now. 
He says, I want you to know why I sent you. I, I, I want you to understand that the church is not in order. It's actually in disorder. It's, it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. And so we need to kind of right the ship at this moment because it's going off the rails. We need to make sure that we're doing what God would want. And as he's doing that, he's saying, I want you to appoint elders or overseers, and we'll talk a little bit more about the, those words in a second here, <clears throat> in every town as I directed you. Now, you may read that and go, oh, no big deal. So I've been here for two and a half years, and we are finally bringing new elders on. Two and a half years. One church with a bunch of good elders already in place. The role of Titus was to go to all of these multiple churches to get rid of all the leadership that was there and to install all new elders at every single church all over the island of Crete. That's a big task. That's a big responsibility. It should also tell you the kind of character of the person of Titus and how much Paul trusted him to have someone like that put people in positions in that authority in those spots. It says a lot about who he is. So what I want to look at as my second point is God's provision for the church. <clears throat> I want you to pay attention as we go through this to what a leader looks like. And I want you to see it doesn't talk about his pedigree, his ability, his skill set, his aptitude. Those things are important, right? There's not that they're unimportant things, but that's not his focus. He wants to point to the character and the heart of the person. The heart is the wellspring of our life, isn't it? And if that is off, even by a degree, you'll miss the mark. Now, it sounds very counterintuitive to approach it this way, doesn't it? Well, we need to find the best and the brightest and the smartest and the most capable, and then we'll figure the rest out. It's very counterintuitive, but that's not God's way. See, God sees the world properly, and he understands us more than we'll ever understand ourselves. And he knows that we are all, all of us are just one bad step away from shipwrecking our life and the life of others. And if you think that you're not, you are deceived by the enemy. We are all just one bad step away from ruining our lives. And the first word that he uses that they are above reproach. He'll use that word above reproach multiple times in this section. It's this idea of being unaccusable not subject to deserving or worthy of a charge or wrongdoing. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear me say. He's not saying you need to find perfect people because they don't exist. You're like, well, what about me? They don't exist, <laughs> okay? There are no perfect people. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying that they're not, there's no open charges against them at this point. It's, it's saying how they live their life. There's nothing you could bring to them but how they're living their life right now that is some sin that they are embracing, that they're taking on, that they're saying is okay. That's not, that's not there. Now, here's what I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about their life before Christ because we all know that we all had a slew of problems before Jesus came and saved us, didn't we? Right? We all had issues. So it's not talking about who we were before Jesus. We already know that that was problematic. That's just what it is. It's where they are now. And the other thing that we're talking about is like, hear me say this. I sin. I sin, okay? Our elders sin. And you can ask them, they'll be like, yeah, I sin too. Right, John? 
Just kidding. I just had to pick on somebody. <laughs> just had to pick on somebody. I picked on Warren before. I'm going to pick on John now. That's how it is. Tony's not in here yet. I don't see him. Anyway, we all are sinners. We're all going to sin. The, the, the idea is this. What do you do when that sin comes to light? Do you, no, oh, I can do what I want. You know the, no. It's that we see it. We understand God's word. We repent of it. We seek forgiveness from God and we put it behind us and move forward. That's what it's talking about. That's what he, when he's saying above reproach, that's what he's saying. And then from there, he goes right into the home life, the home life of the individual. And he talks about this idea, the husband of one wife. Now, if you know the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 has a lot to say about a husband and a wife and what they do. I use that at almost every single wedding I go through. I think it's the best verse that talks about a husband and a wife and their relationship when you do that. And you know, some of the verses aren't gonna be up there this week. I'm gonna try to keep saying them so you guys can take notes and you can talk about them later. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is the passage I'm talking about. But if you look at what it is, it says that a husband and a wife are meant to represent something in a marriage and what it looks like for the world to see. The husband is to represent Jesus and the wife is to represent the church and how they function together should be an example to those that see their marriage and go, wow, there's something amazing about how the structure of that marriage is. And you're like, yeah, that's exactly what Jesus is for the church. And so it says the husband of one wife. You know what Jesus doesn't have? A bunch of other mistresses. He doesn't. He has the church. His bride is the church. He loves the church. He's not forsaking the church. He's not leaving the church. And when it says this idea of a husband of one wife, it's saying you're a one-woman man. I don't seek after others. I don't flirt with others. I'm not in relationship with others. I'm not in polygamy. None of those things are happening. This is who I love and serve. That's what it's saying. That's the, the relation that is meant to be. And then he starts to say, and look at their kids. So, Okay, so what is that all about? Why would he say this to Titus? Like, look at your kids, because this. Your home life is a reflection of how you live your life. As a man, you get this opportunity, if God allows you to get married and have children, that you are given this ability to lead and to care for your family, to, to lead them in a way that glorifies God. Some guys are really quick to abdicate that right away. But he's saying, how you lead your family reflects on how you're going to lead. If we're going to put people in leadership position, how do they do it at home? I mean, let's be honest. You don't wear a mask at home, do you? You can wear it out when you go out with people, and you can, you can pretend to be somebody else. But at home, you're just going to be you. And your kids know it, and your wife knows it. And it says that your children should not be insubordinate or, or led to debauchery, meaning that you have raised your children in such a way that they know the Lord, they are respectful, they are obedient children. Now, there's a lot to say about all this. Like, you can't make your kids love Jesus, but you can point them to Jesus, can't you? The idea is that as you are raising your kids, that they, they know and they love and understand who Jesus is, they are going to make decisions as they get older. That's just the reality of it. I can't control my, I can't make anyone do anything, but I can model the way it shows in Deuteronomy of how I would raise my kids, that they would know and understand and see who Jesus is, and that would lead in a way that I would show whom Christ is. But they are respectful to their parents. They are obedient to their parents. So he says, this is a reflection of how you lead. And, and I just say this, like, your kids, 
good or bad a reflection of you, and you don't like that all the time, you're like, I don't like that. That's a reflection of you at some level. And that's the first thing that Titus says you should look for in a leader. Look at how they are at their home. Look at how they are in their life and the world around them. So we're talking about uh, an an elder, overseer, shepherd, pastor. That's a a word that Paul will use through his letters interchangeably, okay? He's going to use that at different times. Uh, Today he's going to talk, he's going to use the word elder and overseer as those words that he's going to have in place. Uh, An elder just means an elder is uh, over an assembly or Christian believers as an appointed or elected position. And then overseer is a leader who watches over, directs, cares, and is accountable for an assembly of believers. So he'll just use those words at different times in different ways. It's the same role, it's the same position that we're talking about when we talk about that. And don't be weird, like, well, this word said, it's, it's a word that's continually used interchangeably in the Bible. So he's gonna give these two lists that he's gonna talk about. One, he's gonna start with a negative form of what a leader should not be, right? So he's gonna give this negative description so we can say, well, that would be the opposite of And then he's going to give a positive description as well of what they should be like. And so I'm going to read through those and talk about those. And we're going to kind of try to land the plane here at some point today. It says, first, to not be arrogant. This idea of arrogant is meaning that they are mostly concerned about himself. This is all about me. The world's about me. Everything we do is about me. And honestly, it's really not about others. In God's kingdom, in God's family, he said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And so that is going to be about other people from the get-go, that you would not be arrogant about you, not quick-tempered, not a hothead, doesn't blow up on other people. We see that Jesus, as he modeled this, he was very patient. He was a very patient man. Now, there, we do have one major instance where he does get to a point where he has anger there. There's a, there's a reason why. I do not have time to go through that whole passage and why he did that, but there is a righteous anger that came from him. He says, you don't lose your head. You're going to be calm and collective as you talk and work with people. You're not going to be a drunkard. This idea of being consumed with wine or strong drink. And really what's going on here is this idea of not being under the influence of something other than the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, God dwelling inside of us and guiding us, directing us, giving us the words to pray, convicting us of sin, helping us understand what God's word means. That is what we are under the influence of. When you bring any other kind of substance into that, I don't care what it is, you are allowing something else to influence you and you'll just go, well, I don't know, like guys who get drunk, I don't even know why I did that. I do. It's because you started living in the old self and that old self was making its way out because you took all the inhibitions away and really what you're seeing is really what you wanted to do ultimately. See, we want to be under the Holy Spirit, not under something else. The Holy Spirit is righteous and holy. Everything else is not. It says that we are to be uh, not violent. We are, we are those who make peace. That is our, we are peacemakers as it would say. I love when you look at Jesus. Jesus commanded legions of angels. Like, how many is that? I don't know, but it's a lot. Like, he was the commander in chief. I could have called down all these legions of angels to come and, and protect me, to pull me out the cross. He could have come and said, All right, everybody, I'm setting up shop. I'm the boss. You're going to do what I say, or these guys are going to zap you all. But what did he do? How did he, how did he rule? He ruled with love. 
He wasn't violent in what he did. He actually loved people. He showed them what God's love looks like, and God's love is actually more powerful than all the armies. These men are not to be violent. It says these men can't be greedy, driven by money and wealth and power and the things that build them up. Because it says that ultimately those things are going to bring shame upon themselves. But it says that we should be this. We should be hospitable. We should be welcoming. As you look at the life of Christ, he was hospitable. Wherever he was staying, inside or outside, he was always welcoming people in. He brought in people that people didn't want to have there, sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He would welcome them in to be a part of his life so they could engage with him. A lover of good. Now, that's a weird term. We use the term good. Good's a weird term, right? It's an arbitrary term. It's very vague in nature. And it depends on who's defining the word good, doesn't it? Like, that's the problem with the word good. So what does it mean to be a lover of good? Well, when Jesus was called good teacher, what did he say? Anyone know? In Luke 18, 19? Only God is good, right? None is good. Only God is good. So if Jesus has defined what is good, that means what God calls good is good. What he calls evil is evil. If he says, this is what you would call good and righteous and holy, that's what you want. So what does it mean to be a lover of good? It means to be a lover of the things of God. And what God says is good. And what God says is holy. What God says is righteous. And we be self-controlled. Keeping your passions and desires in check. Like, wait a minute. I thought if I should be able to do whatever I want, right? Like I have a desire, I should just go fulfill it. That's what the world says. I, I, I can't deprive myself of any passions. You know what's funny? We don't do that with our kids. Yet we think it's okay for us, don't we? Like it, your kid's like, I want to eat cake for dinner every night. Well, you need to follow your dreams. And you need to pursue your passions in life for sugar. So please, eat all the cake. Would you like some ice cream with that? See, we're all laughing because we know how foolish that is. But we don't see that relationship between God and us as us being the child, do we? We don't always just go after whatever we want. Because if we're a lover of good, we'll go after what God calls good and what God has put as standards. It says that we would be upright and holy that we'd be living a righteous life, one that reflects the character of God. That's what we're called to be. If you look at this, and it's, the last one is a discipline in his life, that we create disciplines, and at times we even have ourselves do these things. Even though it's hard and we don't want to, we have disciplined ourselves to do them because we know how important they are for our life. But if you look at all these things, it really feels a lot like a section out of Galatians 5, 23 through 26. You know what that is? The fruit of the Spirit. Like, if, if you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit, meaning you are a Christian who loves Jesus and you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, this is what your life is going to look like. This is how this is all going to play out. It reminds me of someone. Jesus. That's who it You're like, who is Jesus? This reminds me of Jesus. God's people are going to look different. They are going to like look like Christ. And I, and I want to add this. Though we're talking about elders in those positions, 
The majority of this list of what God desires for everyone who loves and worships Jesus. Ladies, if you're looking for a man to marry, I got a list for you. That's a good list. That's the list you want to look at. Men, if you're looking for who should I date, just kind of look at this list and go, is that the kind of person that they are or are they somebody else? Like, we are called to look like Christ, you guys. There should be a lot of little Jesuses walking around all over the place. Wherever we go, we should be little Jesuses. Uh, that looks like Jesus. That, looks like, uh, that seems like Jesus. I think of garden gnome-sized Jesus. I don't know why. That's what I think of. Little garden gnome Jesuses walking around loving people. And you're like, you're weird. I know. I am. Welcome. If you're new, it gets worse. Um, <laughs> In the same way, Jesus never asked us to do something that he hasn't already done perfectly. See, this is how Jesus modeled and lived his life. And this is what he's calling his followers to do as well in everything they do. And you're like, well, Simon, that's great. Um, that's not important to me. I'm just coming here. I'm not going to be an elder. I don't desire to be an elder. I don't even meet all the qualifications of elders, so this really doesn't pertain to me. I'm going to check out and check what the betting scores are for the game today. No. Because all of this has a purpose. And this purpose of what we're talking about has a huge impact on you and your life as well. See, verse 9 actually lays it out. It actually tells us what's happening in this section. In verse 9, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that, so here's our reason, he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Like, there's a purpose for what this is, and that purpose has a direct impact on you. So who we have in these positions of leadership are going to be the people that are going to be influencing and instructing and in sound doctrine to you, and also correcting when doctrine is not in accordance with God's Word. Like, that's who they are. That's what's happening. They're the ones that are holding the line of truth. We want to know what God wants for us. We go to his word. If we don't have leaders that say, no, God's word says this, how are we going to live a life that brings glory to God? If we're trying to take off the old self every day, right? I want to take off the old self. I want to, I want to get rid of my old way of life. How are we going to know what that looks like if we don't have people who know God's word that can communicate that? Like, it's not about Simon's opinion. It's not about my wisdom, because there's not a lot there. It's not about the elders' wisdom. It's in the fact that it's God's wisdom that the elders would be communicating to their people. That is what holds truth. So we know what God says the church should look like. We know who they are, but there's a stark contrast that's happening. And it's not a good contrast. It's actually a bad contrast. He's going to give us this real-time issue of what's happening when God's plan for leaders aren't established and they aren't lived out. And he hence shows the necessity to have it in place. Without it being in place, this is what the church will look like if you don't have these kinds of people in place. And by the way, these are the kind of men that literally need to confront the very thing that he's about to describe. And if you can't confront these issues and see the air in these ways, you're probably not fit to be an elder. And you probably don't know your word. So, 
this is what we see as the problem that takes place in this area. And it's basically, it says, if, it's, if anything is driven by a different truth than God's truth, this is where we're gonna end. Now, remember, Paul had gone to Crete and he planted some churches. Uh, he taught them, but had not had appointed elders yet. That's really kind of where we run into this issue. Like I said, it takes a while to find a good, godly elder of a church. You really need to watch them. You need to see their life. You need to see how they respond. You need to see their family. You wanna know that what they say matches up with how they live. That's really what we're looking for here. Again, we're not looking for perfect people. We're looking for men who are moving in a constant direction of worship and submission to Jesus in every area of their life. Let me say that again. This is what we're looking for. Men who are moving in a constant direction of worship and submission to Jesus in every area of their life. That's what we're looking for. These men are the kind of disciples that we would hope and desire for every disciple that's in the care of our church. And so because there were no elders in place, some people slid into that position of power. And so then he gives us another list of what this looks like and the problem. Insubordinate. I mean, this is like back to the garden 101. <laughs> this is all the way back in Genesis. They were under the authority of God, enjoying God and everything that God had to offer. And what did they do? Uh, we don't need you. We want to be our own gods. We're going to take it on our own hands. That's insubordination. That's being insubordinate, saying, I, it's a dispose or to engage in defiance of established authority. The established authority is God. That's the established authority. It's a lack of submission to the authority that is rightly put in place. It's a rebellious people who hate authority. That was Adam. That was Eve. You're like, that was them, not me. They are a perfect representation of humanity, and that is you as well, because you would have done the same thing. They were sinless and did the same thing. We're sinners and we still do the same thing. Like, right? Like, th that's, that's who we, we would do the exact same thing. And this is why Paul last week called himself a servant of God. Meaning, I'm under the authority of God as well. Yes, I have been commissioned to have, to say authoritative things on God's behalf because I've been commanded because I'm a servant. That's why I'm doing it. First uh, Peter 5, 1 through 3 and verse 5 say this. We'll get to the fourth one eventually here today. So I exhort the elders among you, there's, a, there's that word again, as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Go down to verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is such a key factor in everything that we have. This is the whole, the whole posture with the gospel when it comes before us that we are saying, I can't, I don't have the ability, I can't meet God's standard, I'm in rebellion to God, I'm under his wrath, I can't save myself, there's nothing I can do to earn God's favor. I have to say, I need you, Jesus. I don't have the ability. And I submit to you. And I submit to your authority. And anyone who can come to a place before themselves and realize who they truly are in a perfect, holy, and just God would come to the same conclusion. I can't. 
I can't be good. I can't be good enough. I can't meet your standard. And so I humbly come to you to be the one to live the life that I couldn't live, to take the wrath that I deserved, to give me the righteousness that I can't earn on my own so I can be with you for forever. That is the gospel. It's all about humility. It's, it's the posture of every believer, not proud in who we are and what we did because we did nothing but bring the problem of sin to the problem in the first case. It says they're empty talkers. They talk in vain. Um, you ever go and have a conversation with somebody, you talk for a really long time and you walk away and you're like, I don't even know what we talked about. It seemed really important at the time and you walked away and it was like completely meaningless and pointless. You ever have that conversation? If you say it's when you talk with me, there's a problem. <laughs> I, I, these kind of conversations are tricky, right? They're kind of like a candy bar. You're like, what are you talking? It's like a candy bar in the sense that you're like, I'm so hungry. I need something. I'm gonna eat this candy bar. And you're like, this is so good. And the last bite hits you like, I feel horrible. It has no nutritional value for you whatsoever. There is nothing from that candy bar. It's like, this was so good. But Snickers says it satisfies. They are lying to you. <laughs> it does not satisfy. You're just as hungry later and fatter. Like, that's the problem. That's what it's like when you have those conversations. There's no substance to the gospel and God's truth in it. And so because there's no substance to the gospel and that truth, it doesn't actually do anything for your heart and your soul and your life. This is the deceivers, that they were leading people, others, to believe something that was not true. We don't know exactly all that they were saying, but it wasn't true. We need to go to the source for truth. What did Pilate say? What is truth? Who's he talking to? The way and the truth and the life in that moment. The truth is in God. God is our truth. We need something outside of ourselves for real truth. The thing outside of ourselves is God. We need God's truth because he is outside of sin and the corruption of everything that we are. He's the only one that sees perfectly and clearly so he can only speak into that truth. Every one of these points I could do a sermon on, but I'm not. Then he says the circumcision party, this group that's come up, an entire group that's come up, um, we see it over and over again in the Bible. Paul deals with it constantly. Another way that that uh, circumcision party could be translated would be circumcision for salvation. That's how that could be translated as well, depending on what version you have. The idea is this, that, that if you adhere to the laws and the traditions from the Jewish people, that will bring you salvation with God, that will please God, that will uh, allow you to be in relationship with God. So do all the rules, do all the stuff, and then God will be happy with you. It's a lot of weight and a lot of rules. It's kind of hard. We feel that, don't we? See, we can think of that going, well, that, no one would ever think that. I, you couldn't trick me. I wouldn't fall into that. Do you realize in the book of Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about this, and he talks about one of the key leaders in the church that fell into the same problem. Who's he talking about? Peter. Peter got wrapped up in the circumcision group, didn't he? He was hanging out with the Gentiles. He was eating the Gentiles. He was having hand sandwiches. Everything was great. He was enjoying their presence. And then what happens? The circumcision group comes up. Hey, 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 hey. They're not following the laws. They're not following the tradition. They're not circumcised. You can't eat with them. You can't be with them. They're unclean. That makes you unclean. And you want to be clean, don't you? Peter's like, oh, I want to be clean. Stop hanging out with them. What does Paul do? He just rebukes him to his face. What are you doing, Peter? 
the rock on which I will build my church? If it can happen to Peter, do you not think it can happen to us? And I love that Paul says, dude, that's not the gospel. And then he lays out the gospel. If you go to Galatians uh, 2, I'll just read it. Galatians 2, it's not in, just listen. Uh, Galatians 2, 15 through 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because the works of the law, no one will be justified. Could it, could it get any clearer? Any more like you could really boil down and these guys are saying, no, no, you have to do works to be saved. And it's like, that is a false gospel. You are deceiving people. You are so far gone and so far wrong, you couldn't be any farther away. And then he starts talking about this prophet that existed in the Cretan people. Um, Epimendes is the, is the prophet. And he would say this, that Cretans are always liars. Always, but always liars. Not sometimes, not occasionally. Always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Hence the title for my sermon. I couldn't think of a better sermon title than that. Liars, beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul agrees. He's all, and this is true. <laughs> That's crazy. You're like, well, that doesn't seem very gospel. What's going on here? Really what's going on here is he's saying this. And this is where he kind of moves into verse 15. He starts talking about the purity and, and being deceived and all, all this revolves around this. He's saying this. This is what we came to preach against. The gospel transforms you from this into something else. The gospel gives you a new heart, no longer the old heart. You are still living in your old heart. You are still living in your old ways. And he says, it doesn't matter what you do, if that heart is wrong, everything you touch will become dirty. You ever have like grease on your hands and you try to go in your house and wash your hands and all of a sudden there's a trail of grease on every doorknob and light switch all the way in. You're like, everything I touch is ruined. That's sin. That is your life. Even good things, we will ruin because of sin. That's what he's saying. But then he's saying, for those that are pure, everything is pure. Well, what's he talking about? This idea of purity, uh, the definition is uh, guiltless in a state of ritual cleanliness or free from guilt and sin. He's saying that for those that have been saved by Jesus, they've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that their guilt has been taken away from the blood of Christ, that their sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ, that they have righteousness now because of the blood of Christ, that they are pure. They have a new heart. They have a new heartbeat, which means they have a new way that they want to live. And how do they want to live? In a way that glorifies God in all things. For those of the pure of heart that have the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, God residing in you, your desires will be for the things of God. Meaning that it doesn't say, well, you can do whatever you want and it's pure. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that you will only pursue that which is pure and holy and righteous because that is now the heartbeat of your life. Here's the issue that was happening that Paul was so frustrated about. It, there was no contrast in life. There was no contrast between the people of God and the people of the culture. 
If you understand why God chose the Israelites, it was meant to stand out as a sore thumb. The Israelites looked so different than every other culture that existed in that day and in that age. They were like the only group that worshiped one God. They're like, you only have one God. What's wrong with your, your religion? You need like lots of gods. There's so many gods. Like you have one God. And there's things that they did and there's things that they didn't did. And it made them just stand out in the culture. Why? Why does God want them to stand out? to show them that God's people look differently, to show them that we want to have a conversation of why you live and act and think and live your, your life is so different. Can we talk about why? Let me tell you about the God, our God Yahweh, the God of the universe who loves and transforms our hearts. I want a conversation to happen. There's a picture up there if you wanna throw that picture up there real quick. Beautiful, I did not take it. This is a great example of, of textbook contrast, right? Um, you've got black and you've got white. You have the white on top of the black. And because of that, everything stands out. You can see all the little details in this dandelion and what's going on. You can see all of it very clearly. If, that, if you started to move the contrast to where it was more grayed out, it would just be like a white blob on there. And he's saying, this is how you're acting with my church. You look exactly like everybody else. There is no contrast. There is no difference in how you live and what God's word says and how it's transformed you. And because of that, like, what am I to do with you? You don't look any different. I, I, I'm going to brag on one of my sons because I, I, I love my kids. My son, Hudson, he, he puts himself around a lot of non-Christians. I love that kid. And you know, he loves Jesus. And his friends all know that he loves Jesus. His friends all know that he is different. There are things that he does not partake in. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't ridicule them. He's like, I'm not going to partake in that. And he has conversations with people. And they ask questions like, well, why don't you do this? Or, well, it sounds like you're a Christian. Why do you believe that? Just a couple days ago, he had a great conversation where he got to defend who Jesus is in his faith and talk about how not only is, are these particular things in life called sin, not them sinners, but that's a sin, that he also sins and he needs Jesus and that everyone needs Jesus in that. There's a contrast to how he's living his life that makes him stand out, which promotes conversations about Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. My fear is the same fear that Paul has today. Do we look different from the world around us? Are we standing out as someone who's different, as someone who is changed and transformed by the blood of Christ or not? So how do you deal with these, these guys, these, these false leaders? Well, he says that they must be silenced or to stop mouth, not allowed to talk these lies to God's people. You've lost your voice. You don't get to talk to them anymore. We're done here. And then he says to rebuke them. And then he says rebuke them harshly. He doesn't just say, hey, you should rebuke. Harshly rebuke them. Wow. Like if we looked at a father who was yelling at his kid in the supermarket, he'd be like, that guy is a jerk. He's being so harsh with them as he's rebuking them. He's not a good parent. But if that same father saw his kid running towards a busy street and didn't see a car coming, and he yelled, stop! 
would he be a bad father? That's a sharp rebuke because that child is heading towards disaster and death. And he is saying that we need to call our people in a sharp way so they would realize that the dangers of what they're believing are leading them to a dangerous place, potentially death. Because the whole point of this is that they would repent and turn back to Christ and live in a way that glorifies God. That's the point. Like, we're rebuking out because we want to be jerks. We're not trying to kick them out. We're saying, no, we want you to come back to Christ. We want you to submit to Jesus in all things. What we need to do is understand that these leaders that he's talking about, these right leaders, they look to one leader. I said I'd go back to Peter. Verse four says this. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus. Who are these shepherds to model their life after? Jesus. They look to him for how they lead and what they do. Because here's the thing. If we don't have this character in place for our leaders, we can look just like the leader that I spoke of earlier in this sermon. Because in a church the congregation will start to look like the leaders. And that's exactly what was happening in Crete. That's exactly what Paul was telling Titus, why he had to establish appropriate leaders. You're like, well, what's the application point? That we need good leaders. That we need godly men that will stand firm on God's word and not be ashamed of it. That will not back down when the culture comes. And here's the thing. Those leaders are called to equip the saints for the work of ministry, meaning that those leaders teach the people that are under their care and that they grow them in a way that they would understand God's word. So then they would go and they would tell others God's word and they would do the same thing and so on and so on and so on until Christ returns. I'm gonna have the band come up here and I'm gonna pray. We're gonna thank God for his goodness and provision. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for blessing us with being able to understand what a, a godly leader looks like and what you would want from your people and how we could live a life that brings you glory and honor. Lord, I ask that we would be a church that constantly submits to you in all things, that we sit under the truth of your word and we use that as the plumb line for our lives, that we would be able to care for those men and women, that we would be a contrasting group of people in this community with the hopes and the desires to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't know you. We love you and we pray all these things in your glorious name, amen.